Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to the afternoon show. I'm Bill Arnold. I cannot believe it's December 22nd already. I've got roughly two and a half days until I have to start panicking to shop. I think I'm going to get a couple of gifts. Nat, I'm going to get you something, I think. A little something for my producer, Nat. You look scared. I'm just doubting. <laughs> yeah, you should doubt. <laughs> That's probably a good doubt you're having. All right, we're going to have a great show today. Uh, Mike Hall is going to be coming on the program in just a minute. And then it's going to be a wonderful opportunity to hear from Kristen Scott Benson, who is a five-time Bluegrass Musician of the Year, one of my personal faves. You're going to enjoy that. And then uh, Jeff Redorn is going to be joining me in hour two. We're going to talk about prophecies from the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New Testament regarding the birth of Jesus. So that's all ahead. And then in James chapter 3, I'm reading, starting in verse 16, for where you have envy and selfish ambition... There you will find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is, first of all, pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. That's the way James chapter 3 ends, starting in verse 16. But Mike Howell is is sitting in today for Rob Bluey. If you're a Rob Bluey fan, I know many of you are. You're going to become a Mike Hall fan very quickly. He's senior advisor for executive branch relations at the Heritage Foundation. Kind of a big deal. He's a lawyer. He previously worked in the general counsel's office at the Department of Homeland Security. And before that, for the chief oversight committees of the House and Senate. Mike, welcome. Hey, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. How would I do on the intro? Does that sound about right? You you nailed it. I, I think that's great. Very kind of you. It's a Hard shoes to fill, filling in for Rob, but uh, we'll do our best here today. Is he like the world's nicest guy? He might be, you know. I, I, it's hard to, you know, imagine someone much nicer, but he is, <laughs> he is a very nice guy. Yeah. You also, uh, have, I can tell that when Rob talks, he's smiling. That's one thing I, I've, <laughs> I know about Rob, and you sound like you're smiling too, so I appreciate that. You got it. Yeah. And tell me just uh, quickly, I know you're just going to be here for today, but um, you live uh, in D.C. area? Well, I, I just moved out, actually. Okay. Unfortunately, D.C.'s taken a, a hard turn and not for the better. And yeah. so my wife and I uh, decided to move up to uh, Maryland, you know, the suburbs of, of Maryland. It's a little safer here after the summer we had, but, you know, many other cities had. That's just no place to, to raise a family. So we got out. Yeah. Let's start off by chatting about this little 5,600-page uh, spending bill. Oh, my gosh. The, the swamp <laughs> is back in action. Okay. I mean, you, you can't script these things to be more swampy, you know, than they are. It's, it's, it's really unfortunate. Um, this is how Congress governs when it's, you know, at its weakest. Mm. This is the, the product of just closed-door negotiating by select leadership, you know, members, Pelosi and, and, and you know, her leadership team, and the swampiest of the swamp lobbyists. Uh, this bill was placed on, you know, the desks of the rank-and-file members around 2 p.m. yesterday. And, you know, they were told to, to vote that night, and, and they did, and they passed it. Wow. Now, at 6,000 pages or so, 
the average person reads about 250 you know, words a minute, and I saw a stat that it would take three full days to actually read this whole thing. So mm-hmm. very clearly no one was able to do that. I spent the better part of yesterday control F and around as fast as I could and trying to navigate it, and what a mind-numbing exercise that was. But it confirms what I'm sure you already suspect, that this thing is a pork fest. Oh. It is loaded up with all the stuff you can only get through in the, you know, the middle of the night. Oh, no kidding. And I'm looking at some of the ways in which it got divvied up, and I see that Egypt got a billion, 300 million, Sudan got 700 million, uh, you know, Kennedy Center got 26 million, uh, Burma got 135 million. I mean, there's a lot of, like, what, non-American people getting money. Yeah, no, absolutely, there are. So basically what they did is they took all of these must-pass bills and rolled them in, up into what's called an omnibus. So you have these, uh, you know, foreign affairs type type bills that, you know, they include the foreign aid in, and then they attach it to the things that have all the political attention, like COVID relief. Mm-hmm. And so unless you're going to stand up and say, you know, I'm not here to vote for COVID relief, relief's not coming before Christmas, you got to vote for all that other stuff. And that's why they do it that way. You know, mm. to put people in a politically untenable position. Now, we at the Heritage Foundation and our, uh, you know, sister organization, Heritage Action, our lobbyists, they came out and scored against this, which means that in their scorecard of how they rank members on how conservative they are, if you voted for this, you get a pretty big knock on your record. And uh, we, we did that for a host of, of reasons. That's due to just all the stuff that it's loaded up with. And then furthermore, it doesn't do what it needs to do on COVID. Right. This is not what, the, what we need. Uh, it's a you know very blunt instrument, um, and it's just you know wasteful spending for the sake of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've long advocated that the best solution is you know you need to be temporary targeted. You need a scalpel, not a sledgehammer. And this is a sledgehammer. Uh, we've been saying that you, the the federal government, specifically you know Health and Human Services and the FDA, they need to get their house in order. And one of the big ways they can do that is get these rapid home tests going. They need to get them improved and be able to be, you know, purchased and dis- distributed to the the folks who need them. If you got those home tests out there, we're doing a whole lot better than we're doing with anything else, you know, right now with lockdowns and stuff. If people are able to get a quick, rapid test at home, they can go about their lives and go to work and have confidence in their safety. And uh, that's just not what we're doing now. We're basically paying people to stay home. We're giving every incentive there is to to businesses and you know, you know, local jurisdictions to keep things locked down. That's not going to get us on the on the path to economic or public health recovery. We need a you know both public health solutions and economic solutions, and unfortunately, this this really doesn't do any of either of those. Yeah. So, Mike, how is it that we want people to stay home when we're ordering stuff online and we're expecting trucks and everything else to deliver all the stuff we want, including our groceries? So, I don't know what this is accomplishing. Right. Uh, it's accomplishing a lot if you're an Amazon lobbyist. I'll tell you that. Yeah, that's or, for sure. You know, one of these mega lobbyists, these are the the gulf between, you know, the haves and have nots in our economy is just widening with this kind of stuff. We're in trend help the giants of our, you know, corporate system, you know, your Amazons, your major grocers. If you're a mom and pop, you know, store or restaurant, you're in trouble. And I, I you know, I worked in the restaurant, you know, industry growing up up until, you know, my, my mid twenties. I know how it goes. I got a lot of good friends still in there. Mm-hmm. And shutting these places down that's not going to help these folks in the long run. It, putting a Band-Aid on it isn't, isn't the solution. These places are going to struggle to reopen, the places that don't have the reserves to withstand this. And the, the places that do have the reserves, 
they want this shutdown to go on as long as possible because it's just wielding the competition away for him. Mm-hmm. Mike, this uh, this bill could have been a path forward to put the country in a better direction, but we didn't. We missed the mark with this one, didn't we? We we certainly did. And and the the sad part is the the left knows what they're doing, and the right played into their hands quite a bit by by letting this one go. The left is going to take as much as they could get right now because their first priority, if you know Biden is inaugurated and all of that, is to just put up the biggest COVID bill you've ever seen. Mm-hmm. Uh, so right now they're just trying to get as much as they can get done. And you know they're not going to sit there and listen to any argument from the right then that said, oh, well, we just did it. No, they're full speed ahead. They're looking to usher in every sort of you know major left policy goal they can attach to you know COVID as a reason. One of the biggest ones is they want to take – you know, our tax dollars and bail out these blue states and blue cities that have completely blown up their budgets for things unrelated to COVID. You know, these unfunded pensions and just these mass entitlements and these, uh, you know, open border type policies that these you know cities have and attracting and, you know, sustaining like illegal alien communities. They, they want us all to pay for that under the guise of, of COVID relief, not to mention every other priority they're just going to try to attach to a, a COVID relief bill to make it as difficult as possible to vote against. So we got to be careful. And, you know, I don't think we, we saved any grounds by passing this bill on, you know, th- this go around because they're going to come back to the trough and they're going to be a lot thirstier. Mm-hmm. So Mike, I'm just trying to figure out this bill. Um, it looks like, what, what would you get about $600? Uh, yes, if you're under a certain income yeah. threshold, I believe it's seventy five thousand, and then okay. uh, it, it gets tapered a bit as you, yeah. as you go up the scale. And then there's allowances for you know family members and whatnot. And, and previously, there are certain restrictions if your house, you know, the, the calculations that went into households, uh, if there were illegal aliens in there. But we did away with that. So, yeah. I mean, open borders, come on in, we'll pay you to be here. Yeah, wasn't it not that long ago, Mike? That Nancy Pelosi was uh, scoffing at the $1,200 payment. That was just crumbs. Oh yeah, I think the crumbs quote was yeah the, the tax cut. She she, yeah, she called the 1,200 crumbs I think. And then there was another uh, statement about the thousands people got from the the tax cuts act, and uh, she said that was nothing. But apparently now 600 significant. But I mean it's a, it's a political face saving you know statement. Uh, uh, she probably didn't th- think through all the way there, mm-hmm. but it's just you know. She's not one for consistency. I wouldn't say that. Yeah. Uh, Jarrett Stepman, who's been on the show a number of times, who's also a nice guy, then I think he smiles when he talks. I think everyone at the Daily (laughs) Signal smiles when they talk. Um, Wrote a great piece at DailySignal.com. You can head over and check it out. And his uh, title of it was that Biden would likely issue flurry of executive orders on climate, abortion, and immigration. Can you process that article with us? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I I think what you can expect from a Biden administration is a continuance of the Obama administration style of governance. I mean, there is a lot of criticisms, legit criticisms coming from the right and, you know, the rest of America that uh, Obama, you know, saw himself fit to be king and, you know, basically ruled by executive fiat. And that was one of the big mistakes they made because when Trump came in, he was able to undo a lot of that. Mm -hmm. But, you know, President uh, Biden is basically saying that he's not going to sit around and wait for Congress on on these things. He's going to act very aggressively on executive orders and and see how much he can get away with. Uh, Some of the biggest ones that he's talking about is this idea of, you know, DACA extensions and amnesty. DACA is the Deferred Actions for Childhood Arrival. It's a program for uh, 
people who came to the country illegally before they were 18. But it's this, this style of, you know, basically taking large populations and saying, uh, it doesn't matter if you broke the immigration laws, you can stay. He's planning to build on that. His campaign has gone as far to say basically everyone in the country illegally is, you know, doesn't have to worry about being removed uh, via deportation. And so that that's one huge area on climate. This is an area that, you know, Biden's put together a really radical team. Uh, this is an area that is very well-funded and well-moneyed on, on the left, and they have big dreams. They view this issue as a way to basically reshape the economy. It's not about climate. It's not about saving the earth and, you know, uh, green everything. It's, it's about changing the way our entire economy works so you can capture these gigantic industries and, you know, remake them in such a way that fits the less policy goals. He's talking about rejoining the Paris Climate Agreement, which is basically something that Obama entered into that tied us to, to standards for our, our you know, energy companies that were unrealistic. And the idea was that we could get some concessions out of other countries to lower if we did it ourselves. Well, as it turned out, like most you know, agreements that the left tries to get us into, we give up way more than we get. And you know, President Trump left that agreement, and we've actually done better than any other country has since we've left that agreement. You have India and China, who are basically blowing up their emission, you know, outputs, and and all these developing countries that are really the problems if you're concerned about global warming and these issues. Um, and such an agreement wouldn't do anything to taper those down. It basically would just restrict United States energy industry in all an effort to basically remake our economy in a way that they they better see fit. So expect executive actions all across the board there. Um, There's a lot that President Trump and the EPA and Mr. Ruler have done on this front through regulation and executive action uh, that has made, you know, our water, our air, it's cleaner than it's ever been right now. Mm -hmm. Our our record on those issues is terrific. But you got to understand that's not what they're going for. Mm -hmm. These are, these are economic issues. And so expect, tons of action on that front to kind of get at things that could never make it through Congress. Uh, Just, you know, the other day, they were talking about the administration submitting the Paris Climate Agreement to Congress as a treaty, which, you know, should be as an international obligation, you know, an agreement between other countries. That's what we conceive of as a a treaty. And under our Constitution, if you want a treaty, you got to submit it to be voted on by the Congress. and the idea there is if you submit it, Congress will vote it down because Congress does not want it. The people do not want it. Uh, the Biden administration recognizes that people don't want these things. They don't want their energy bills to skyrocket. They don't you know, want to pay out the nose for these far left kind of mm-hmm. issues. And, and, and so they're thinking about submitting it to Congress, see if they'll vote it up or down. If they vote it down, Biden will do it anyways via an executive agreement. You know, this kind of rule by fiat, very paper thin uh, legal way to go about it. But that's what that's what Obama did, mm-hmm. and that's what Biden's going to do. And so I'd, I'd expect a lot on that front. All right. Let me take a little break. Mike Howell is my guest, mm-hmm. and uh, we're take a short break. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. So glad to have Mike Hall with me today. He's Senior Advisor for Executive Branch Relations at the Heritage Foundation. He's a lawyer and he previously worked in the General Counsel's Office at the Department of Homeland Security 
and before that for the chief oversight committees of the House and Senate. And because it is Tuesday, he uh, is sitting in for Rob Bluey today, and awfully glad he's able to do that. Uh, Mike, let's chat a little bit about the uh, lockdowns, lockdowns for thee, but not for me, from some politicians. Yes, uh, one of one of the greatest political gaps we've seen just played on loop by these leaders. It's like no one ever learns. And people are, you know, it's just every night there's a different one who's out there breaking their own rules. And I'll tell you what I find most offensive. Of course, there's the gotcha element of all of this. Mm -hmm. But what really hits me, and I mean, every one of us and all of your listeners know how much this has affected our lives. If these leaders who have scared us to death do not believe the own advice that they've scared us for, then that to me is the gravest sin. That is, you know, uh, more than a lie. It's, it's them changing public behaviors for something they do not believe in themselves. A lot of these folks are in all sorts of risk categories as well. Um, and so you would think if they believed what they were saying, the best way, you know, is to actually act as if they, you know, take their own advice. And they're not doing that. And, you know, I, I hope the voters wise up and, and, and really hold these folks accountable. You know, these are these are the people we trust. They have access to the best health information and all of the power. And clearly they their words are not matching their actions and their words and their their, you know, broad policy pronouncements are having massive impacts on our lives, on our physical health, on our mental health, on on everything across the board. And they can't even be bothered to basically have the courage of their convictions and uh, listen to their own advice. And that that to me is a crisis of legitimacy for our ruling class. Yeah, I mean, can you think of one in particular that uh, seemed a little bit over the top? I think Gavin Newsom really takes the cake here, right? Yeah, I would I, think so, uh, too. California is the, the poster child of this stuff, and he's got a whole mess on his hands now. I mean, there's a very serious recall effort happening out in California. That's not something you want if you're the governor, and especially if such a blue state. This guy was the darling of the left. He was supposed to be, you know, the, the next major leftist leader. And uh, going out to dinner and just over and over again, uh, having his judgment called into question on these things is a, is a terrible look. Um, I don't know what he is thinking. I mean, if I've worked for a lot of, you know, very senior politicians, and these schedules and these meetings are planned out, and, you know, there are tons of staff thinking through every sort of impact of, of these sorts of actions – so it is just I do not understand how if you are such a high profile person, uh, you can think it's a good idea and you'll get away with closing down everything for for everyone else and then going out and having a nice dinner without your mask on. Mm-hmm. Um, I was watching the other day Stacey Abrams uh, and the Georgia State Legislator when they were doing the uh, you know electoral college business and she didn't even have a mask on. Hmm. And I, I've I've seen her you know paraded around television. Uh, talking about masks and, you know, Donald Trump kills people because of his rhetoric, et cetera. And she's got no mask on and she's someone who certainly should have a mask on. I mean, that, it just makes no sense. And it's just absolute hypocrisy. Mm-hmm. And it really makes you wonder if they actually believe what they're saying. It's not just a, we've gotten to the point where it's, it, it's not accidents. It's not just lapses of judgment. They're absolute indictments of these people's credibility. And it calls into question, you know, whether we should believe what they're saying. Yeah. So, you know, Mike, I see uh, people that they step up to a podium and take their mask off. And I, I always wonder, um, 
is has the virus decided that now I got to be on hold because the mask has come off, so I, I can't do anything? I mean, because when we go to the store, we talk with our masks on, and you know, I think what we're saying in everyday life is important. Obviously, we're not in front of a platform and a national audience, but uh, is it is it should we expect them to just leave the mask on and, and talk through it? It makes no sense. I mean, a lot of these, there, as I tell people, a lot of these are rules that are for you know the mind, not the body sometimes. They're just to make people feel more more comfortable about things. Like if you go out to a restaurant, all of a sudden, it's as soon as you're sitting down, it's okay not to have a mask on. Um, I'm not I'm not one to one, you know, strict rules across the board, but you know these exceptions seem to make very very little sense. And I think one of the most things, you know, greatest examples of this was you know John Lewis his, his funeral. Um, you know, like you know, many people have lost folks. You know, you would have loved to have a funeral where people could have attended, mm-hmm. but every single major left politician flew out of state. And, and went to his funeral. And then you had all of these rules about when you return to a state, you're supposed to quarantine. Well, then they, they went ahead and accepted themselves from those rules. Mm-hmm. Um, and and that's the biggest, the, the leader should obey the rules that everyone else does. I mean, this is a story as old as time. You know, go, go, go back throughout all of history. This is how leaders lose legitimacy. And unfortunately for us, we've lost the media in this country. They're holding these folks to account. You'll get, you know, a, a very brief acknowledgement of what happened on some networks. Some networks won't cover it at all. But it's just the, the media exists, at least in the mainstream, to cover for these folks. They're completely captured. And, and so I really hope that, you know, and, I, and I'm happy that guys like you and, and some other networks and, you know, radio hosts and commentators and so forth are calling this stuff out because I, I think it's a lot more important than just some sort of, you know, political gotcha moment. It's really legitimacy of our of our ruling class. Mm-hmm. Well, I think all of us are in favor of the wisest public health measures we can all take to do our very best to get this thing under control. But, you know, when we talk about uh, tests now, aren't we more interested in getting the vaccine than we are getting more testing? What happens if you the get vaccine, a test and they say that, all right, you have mm-hmm. it. Uh, okay, so you're going to hang, hang home for 10 days, right? Right. I mean, there's still we're still learning about, you know, this vaccine. I, I was told just the other day that you should still wear a mask after the vaccine because they are not sure hmm. if you can still carry it post vaccine. OK. And, and so it's just it's a steep learning curve. But I mean, a, a, any sort of pushing public health information out is drastically undercut when you have, you know, the these leaders running around just obeying their own rules. It's it, it's hard to get, you know, the public altogether united in believing on this stuff. Just like when the you know mainstream media started turning COVID into it's all Trump's fault. Trump's killing grandma. I mean, mm-hmm. you've politicized this issue to the nth degree. Other countries don't have it like this. They don't have their entire media just so hyper-politicized. They just want to put death on the doorstep of, of the president and blame him for everything. And that's added a lot towards our ability to deal with this virus. Mm-hmm. It's just how, you know, just uglier politics have gotten. And, yeah. you know, the, the media, a lot of people just want to blame Trump for that. Yeah. That's, you know, the, the media is driving that. That gets yeah. the clicks. Mikey, uh, Mike, thank you so much for doing the show. Um, I pay Rob nothing, so I will double what I pay him and send it to you. <laughs> Good. I'll tip him out of my <laughs> paycheck. Then, <laughs> Thanks, boy. Mike. Mike, Mike Hall has it. been my guest, Executive Branch Relations, Senior Advisor at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Kristen Scott Benson will be my special guest.
Welcome back to the show. It's my week to be a little indulgent with uh, Christmas happening at the end of the week. And, you know, if you're a basketball player, you might want to meet Stephon Curry. If you're a football fan, you might be thrilled to meet Patrick Mahomes. But uh, if you're a banjo player, you're pretty much going to want to meet Kristen Scott Benson. And I'm uh, so happy to welcome her back to the show. She's a five-time International Bluegrass Music Association Banjo Player of the Year and recipient of the 2018 Steve Martin Prize for Excellence in Banjo and Bluegrass. Since uh, 2008, she's been a member of the Grammy-nominated and two-time IBMA Entertainers of the Year, the Graskels. It's uh, one of the top uh, bluegrass bands in the nation, and they are amazing. You can go to graskels.com, graskels.com to learn more about them. But she's had a a chance with Graskels to play on, I don't know, little shows like The Tonight Show with Leno and Fox and Friends and The Late Late Show and... Uh, CBS, The Talk, and it goes on and on from there. She's uh, also performed in front of a couple of presidents and has uh, probably uh, accumulated uh, over 200 performances at the Grand Ole Opry. There, now I need a drink of water. Uh, Kristen, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Obviously, I'm a big fan and I play your music. I play the Great Waterton on the show regularly. Oh, that's nice. Uh, Yeah, the way that show, uh, I mean, I, I don't get to play the whole song, uh, but I always play about the last 30 seconds, and it literally takes my breath away. Oh, that's nice. Yeah, that's a fast one. That's what we call barn burners in blue. <laughs> yeah, and I know that you uh, have recently relocated. You you left Nashville? Yeah, not so recently, actually. We were in Nashville, or I was, about um, 13 years. I went to Belmont University, so straight out of um, high school, I went to Belmont and then stayed a long time after college. But then when our son was born, I got married in Nashville. And um, we had lived there as a married couple, probably seven or eight years maybe. And then we had our son and uh, moved back to South Carolina to be near uh, my parents, basically. And um, that was a long time ago now. That was in 07, I guess, we moved back. So we've been Carolina folks again for a good while okay awesome so when you get into bluegrass music i'm always curious and i know this probably get get this question asked often uh was there a relative that played banjo was there an influence that you had that you thought oh man i want to i want to learn that instrument yeah almost always that's the story and it was for me nobody played banjo in the family but they all played uh, my dad loved to play bluegrass and then my mom's dad Uh, So my maternal grandfather was a professional mandolin player. So I kind of had it on both sides, and it was always around the house, and I grew up always hearing it and uh, started playing the mandolin when I was quite small. And uh, then when I was about nine years old, I saw a band, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver, and the banjo player in that band at the time was Scott Vestal. And that kind of planted the banjo bug, and it was a few years before I got started. But it's definitely oftentimes a family affair yeah and then also it, it makes me realize you've got a soft spot for uh, mandolin players apparently i remember my grandfather saying when uh, he found out that because my husband is from north carolina and my grandfather is north carolina and i told him i was dating wayne and he kind of knew who he was from uh just being in bands and he said, well, he's a mandolin player from North Carolina. He can't be all that bad. <laughs> my initial reaction was, you don't know all the mandolin players from North Carolina that I know, or you wouldn't say that. 
but no, I definitely got one of the good ones. And uh, in fact, our son, grandfather is such a huge figure in my life as well as his wife. Um, my grandparents in general were, and our son is named after him, Hogan. His oh, name was Arvin Hogan. And uh, so we named uh, our son after the most Christ-like man that either one of us had known, which was my mandolin playing grandfather. Oh, it's beautiful. Now, how old is how old is your son now? He's fourteen. Okay, so what instruments does he play? N- absolutely nothing. Uh, how he, did he, he get off? Let off the hook. Yeah, he is not musical. He he truly just doesn't even care about it at all. Uh, but we see passion. We see the same passion we had as kids uh, with music. And for him, him it's bass fishing, uh, which I've decided is the most expensive thing any child can be interested <laughs> in. All right. Now, the fact that your son does not show any interest in bluegrass, are you willing to adopt someone, i.e. me? Oh, yeah. I tell you what, you're, you got to get in line, though, because I have so many kids that I teach that I have adopted. Oh, beautiful. Uh, it's so funny because we have kids that uh, their parents don't know anything about music, and they kind of depend on us to teach them about that. And a lot of those kids have very outdoorsy dads. And it's like, gosh, we kind of got mismatched here. Uh, <laughs> it's a, uh, bass fish via Skype, and we'd be in business. No, that's very funny. All right, I'd love for you to share with the listeners your your faith story. Sure. Um, well, like I said, I my grandparents were a tremendous influence. I stayed with them uh, quite a lot, and um, they just modeled everything so well. So regardless of uh, what was going on in my immediate family or anywhere else, I always had just this perfect representation of what I felt like um, the Christian life should be and what a Christian marriage should look like. And so they were always a tremendous influence. And uh, my family, I think, went to church when I was very young, but just stopped going as so often that happens, you know. And so from, I don't know, I'm guessing maybe around 5 to 12 uh, we weren't really going to church. It was always understood that, that that was, you know, the the right way to believe and the right way to live. But, you know, I wasn't seeing any evidence of it uh, in our home. And then I think my mom uh, started feeling really nervous because now she has a, a 12-year-old uh, about to enter adolescence who really didn't have a, a church background beyond that extended family and that underlying understanding in the home. So, uh, we started, she and I started visiting churches uh, when I was 12, and it was really a sweet, special time. It was just the two of us. My sister was grown and gone. Uh, my dad, unfortunately, wasn't uh, going with us. And we visited lots of churches in our town. And I have a lot of funny uh, stories about that and memories about it. Uh, but we we happened upon a church called uh, Monet and the Baptist Church in Union, South Carolina, and it just really felt like home. You know, you couldn't get out of the church without people being nice to you. And something <laughs> that I never get, you know, that wasn't always the case when mm-hmm. we would be places, you know. And um, But you couldn't even get out of the door without people welcoming you. And what really impressed me even more now than then, I was in, uh, I guess, seventh grade at the time. And I went to school after visiting... Sorry, that's my dog. If you hear the jingling, oh, that's that. our life. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but I went to school on Monday morning after having visited the church one time. 
And it was like their youth group just came from everywhere. I mean, before school, when you're waiting to go in the building, there they found me and they were saying, hey, did you like it? Do you want to come back? We're doing this this week. And the youth group was just pretty amazing. And so we naturally started going there. And, uh, you know, I have the classic story of I would get almost sick at the end of every uh, service with the invitation. I would hold on to the pews and and just really dread that part because I, I was it wasn't that I was reluctant to God. I just really didn't want to go down in front of everybody, you know, and <laughs> eventually I just looked up at my mom and said, you know, can I go? And she said, yeah. And so I went down and she is not an emotional lady, but she came down behind me and she was, uh, you know, emotional because that's exactly what she had been praying for. So I, um, you know, that was my, uh, I, I think I had known for a long time, but I'd never made that, that formal commitment. And it was just such a relief when I finally did. And I got baptized shortly thereafter. So I was 12 years old, uh, when I got saved and, um, you know, it's a work in progress ever since. Yeah. Uh, amen to all of that. Kristen, I'm going to take a break, but uh, as I'm going to break, I'm going to let uh, the listeners uh, enjoy Oh Holy Night, played by okay. you on the banjo. And then when we come back, we can talk about that as well as, uh, as, well as what else is going on in the music world. You're listening Great. to Kristen Scott Benson, and here is Oh Holy Night. Kristen Scott Benson. You can also go to her website, ksbbanjo.com, 
She's got an album called Stringworks, which I bought a long time ago, and I can't play it enough. It's outstanding. There's other uh, things available for sale on her website. You go, go check it out and learn more about her if you would uh, like. KSBBanjo.com. I do have a lot of listeners, uh, Kristen, that love banjo because I play a fair amount of it uh, on my bumpers, and uh, I get a nice response. People seem to really, really like it, and it must be hard during the pandemic to not be on stage performing. Yeah, it's really changed everything. I, I hardly know any profession that hasn't been affected uh, by the virus, but certainly musicians are among the most affected. And uh, we have been, my husband and I, who is a mandolin player in the band, Russell Moore, third time out, you know, our primary uh, income has always been playing in bands. And uh, we've had to re uh, invent our careers mm. and have been so incredibly blessed. We don't know another, you know, couple of musicians who have been able to weather the storm any better than us. So we're very grateful and thankful for that. You know, I was saying this morning, I, you know, in 2020, I, I didn't get everything I wanted, but I certainly got everything I needed. Yeah. Boy, it, it, it has changed perspectives for sure. And, uh, you know, my husband, has uh, started a YouTube channel, Wayne's World of Mandolin. That's something <laughs> it always yeah, right? That's very uh, funny. <laughs> yeah, he had wanted to do that, and there was just never time between teaching and playing in the band and the other stuff that's going on. He had never had time for that. So that's uh, a project that he's done that, that has been great, and uh, I've been able to record some um, more this year, more than I normally do, and uh, also made some time for producing and some writing of books, and then just an enormous amount of teaching online lessons. So mm-hmm. we have been really blessed to to be able to adapt. Mm-hmm. Kristen, when you go to uh, banjo camps and you perform at those and teach at those, and uh, you're around the, uh, the the Opry and some of those other amazing musicians. Uh, who kind of jumps off the page? What other banjo players do you sort of think, wow, this this person is quite amazing? Oh, all of them. Okay. Really. <laughs> You're no, being so humble just, right now. Yeah. Oh, I, I love them all. I mean, one of the banjo camps that I've taught at, um, it's hard for me to do camps because um, we're playing so much with the band. So if the band gets a job, I have to go play that job. So it's hard for me to make individual commitments Uh, This year has been quite different. They've been virtual and there have been no shows. So I've been able to be a part of several banjo camps uh, this year online. That's the dog again. (laughs) (laughs) But but the two that I've, the one that I've been able to teach the last two years that were in person is, uh, gosh, one of the most special camps ever. And it's Bale of Fleck's Blue Ridge uh, banjo camp. And Bale of Fleck is, you know, absolutely the I, I wouldn't dare call him a grandfather but i mean he's he's kind of the the father of of banjo these days in my opinion just because you have earl scruggs uh obviously who created it all and none of us including Bela, would exist without uh earl scruggs and then if you want to just name another person who kind of took the banjo to new universes and it's the stratosphere and back you know, that would be Bela Fleck, and mm-hmm. he's certainly more mainstream uh, success, you know, than hardly any other banjo players. So, you know, I kind of look at those two guys. It's like Earl Scruggs is the 
heart and soul of what we all do and uh, certainly where I live and breathe musically more than any other place and uh, there are great banjo players in that tradition like J.D. Crow and Sonny Osborne mm-hmm. that I just go on and on about but if you just had to say look here's the guy who created it here's the guy who's taking it to new heights it would be Earl Scruggs and Bela Fleck. Yeah I saw um, some of uh, Bela's basement concerts on Facebook uh, Friday nights and I just was so amused because it was so random and yet the music yeah. was so great and you know kids are running around and they're kind of in their uh, you know their casual clothes it was very cute I, yeah. I, I look forward to seeing those those were great and I did see uh, Earl play with his uh, boys one night at a little club here in Minneapolis and that was a special night you don't ever forget when you get a chance to see a person of his uh, complete mastery of an instrument uh, perform and that's what he is. I mean, he is a is a master. And people use, um, you know, adjectives like that loosely. And there really aren't very many, um, you know, on any given instrument, especially uh, an instrument like banjo, where there's just so much fewer uh, banjo players than, say, electric guitar players. So, I mean, you're talking about a handful of people. And uh, Earl Scruggs is absolutely... Um, the embodiment of three finger style playing that mm-hmm. that it, it's the I've heard it put beautifully by so many great uh, players and critics and you know the the framework he created and the foundation he created is absolutely what has launched every other player into whatever trajectory they chose. It still stemmed from him and what he created. It's really remarkable. Do you like uh, Noam Pekelny? Yeah, I mean, he's kind of the predecessor to, uh, wait, is he a predecessor if you come later? I don't know. <laughs> the next guy. Yeah, the Bela. guy that comes after Earl. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So, well, so you have Bela, and then, you know, and that's how music works. Like, if you look at mandolin players, you have Bill Monroe. Well, you know, you don't get uh, Sierra Hull without uh, a Sam Bush or Chris Thiele without a Sam Bush and you don't get a Sam Bush without a Bill Monroe. I mean, it's just this continuum of players. And as music evolves, you have a huge st- head start. Every time you start after another great player has played, you have access to their thoughts and, and what they figured out. So that's the way that music just continually grows. And uh, Noam is absolutely stunning. He is just amazing. And he is very much, um, you know, right on par with what Bela has done. And uh, he's a much, uh, I mean, I think he's a little bit younger than I am. So he's uh, just right there. I mean, we're, we don't have a shortage of uh, great players playing this instrument, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. Kristen, talk about uh, God's giftedness in your life, because I have a, another, I have a friend who uh, is a very uh, accomplished uh, performer, um and he said, I got my first guitar when I was 11 uh, for Christmas, Christmas morning. And, and by the end of that day, I, I could play three songs. And I thought, huh, no surprise that you're now one of the best guitarists in the world. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, I'm thinking that's a giftedness. I mean, I, I think God just gave him this gift. And what kind of, uh, how fast did you start picking up and becoming good? And all of a sudden people are looking your direction going, whoa, 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 check Check her out. Wow, is she good? Yeah, that is, uh, it's absolutely um, true. You know, I, as a teacher, I really can see that 
much more clearly than you do even in your own musicianship when you start teaching people and you run across all ends of the spectrum. And for some people, it comes so naturally. And then for others, they have to work for even the smallest gains. And uh, that's a painful thing, actually, to uh, try to nurture people through that because, uh, you know, the people that it's harder for doesn't mean that they're less interested or desire it less. But I've always said that uh, musicianship is twofold. And I tell this to parents of students all the time who have a really gifted child. Um, I've had some who ability was through the roof, but the desire wasn't there. Mm. And I think it has to be that balanced combination of um, talent and ability, but also it has to be married with, um, you know, God will give us the desires of our heart. It doesn't mean that he gives us what we want. It means he instills what he wants us to have. And I, I think that uh, we have to trust that. So whatever level of them, you know, you can't make yourself like something and you also can't make yourself dislike it. You know, if you were just obsessed with banjo, you can't say, you know what, I'm just not going to like that as much. It's That's kind of an involuntary thing. And I believe that that personally, I believe that is as much from God as the sheer ability. So, um, you know, I w- had both uh really, really love to play. I would get up and I love to sleep more than anybody in the world. And I would get up early before I would even go to school and play because I just couldn't stand not to play. And uh, so I've, I've gotten a, I think there's a video maybe of me playing uh, with a family band called the Lewis family. And I'd been playing maybe five or six months and uh, you know, I was already able to play, but wow. then you contrast that, um, You know, the Scrugg style came very easily, and uh, it just was really natural. I didn't have to work at it really that hard, but I did work at it that hard. But that goes back to the other uh, part of the desire and the the willingness and interest in it. Uh, But then you contrast that, though, with someone like Noam Pekelny, who you mentioned. And, you know, their ability is is tenfold or more and their desire is tenfold or a thousandfold, whatever, you know, we're all a mixture of those two components. And I think they both are from God. So I got way more thankful. It it was easy for me before I taught everybody I'm around is pretty good, you know, so you don't, you can kind of take it for granted and then you start trying to teach and you, you get a, a good cross-section of what the world is like. And you, then you become more thankful because you're not just surrounded by other professional musicians. You have just everybody who has an interest in banjo trying to play it. And that's when I think I realized that, wow, I was so blessed that this uh, came as naturally as it did. Mm-hmm. Kristen, just an absolute delight. Thank you for taking the time this week uh, to talk to me and let my listeners get to know you a little bit better. Kristen Scott Benson has been my guest, ksbbanjo.com or graskels.com is the group she plays with. Um, Thank you so much, Kristen, and have a very Merry Christmas. You too, Bill. Thank you. You bet. We'll take a short break and be right back to talk to you.
Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.